Hey everyone, uh, coming to you from my back porch yet again. Um, we're going to continue on with our sermon series. Uh, we've been doing our sermons online, so we've been doing uh, on the podcast and then a YouTube recording, and then meeting up Thursday nights at seven um, to discuss the sermon. So if you're if you're listening along, you can find the um, the Zoom link to come to our discussion on Thursday night uh, in on our Instagram. We have a link tree there; you can just click it and find the Zoom link. And at REF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And what that means, pretty simply, is that being a Christian is not, uh, it, it's not about be, like how nice you are. Or it's not about how bad you are. It's about Jesus. See, we're made right with God through Jesus alone. And that's what RUF is all about. And we're continuing on our series this semester uh, in the Psalms called Songs That Shape Us. And the Psalms were the hymn book of the Old Testament people of God. Every week they would get together and, and sing these psalms. Um, they would remind each other what's true. These psalms are meant to, to shape the way that they related to one another, to shape the way they related to God, to shape the way that they related to creation. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 96, which is a song about God's mission. A song about God's mission. So I'm going to read the passage for us and pray, and then we can get started. So Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest shall sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. And Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to continue considering your word uh, together, even though um, this virus has forced us to be apart. Lord, I pray um, for all of us. I pray for those uh, watching this on YouTube, those listening to the recording, and for myself right now, Lord, that we would, uh, that you would open our eyes, that we might see clearly who you are, Lord, that you would instruct us from your word and that you would change us. And Lord, we, uh, we do this with confidence that you will do that. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so if you know me, uh, you know that I love the, uh, the TV show The Office. Um, and one of my favorite episodes of The Office uh, is uh, one about the Michael Scott Paper Company. Perhaps you've seen it. Uh, so Michael Scott is the boss on The Office. He's the boss at Dunder Mifflin, 
paper company. And uh, at one point, he leaves Dunder Mifflin and he starts his own paper company. And from the get-go, you can tell he doesn't really have any idea what he's doing. But as he starts his paper company, he ends up taking Pam, who's another one of the main characters, and she joins him kind of foolishly in this paper company. And uh, the first day of them starting the company together, um, Michael's kind of freaking out, uh, but then he just mentions to Pam that, well, he has an investor meeting for their new company, um, to which Pam's really excited about. Um, so, you know, the, the episode goes along and they, they start, you know, gathering a team together to go to this investor meeting. And as they show up to this investor meeting, um, you realize that it's, it's not actually a group of local people who want to invest in his new business. Actually, it's his Nana, meaning Grandma, and her friends. And so they're going to this local retirement community to pitch Michael's grandma to see if she will join him in this business venture. And so as this thing started, his Nana says to him, all right, Michael, let's hear it. And Michael says, okay, I've spent the last 15 years learning the ins and outs of the paper industry. With a lean, mean fighting crew and low overhead, I think I can perform the same business at a much, much higher rate of profit. To which his Nana replies, how do you expect to turn a profit in this economy? And Michael says, by wanting it more and by working hard. And then his Nana, who's kind of exasperated at this point, she says, what's your, what's your mission statement? Do you even have one of those? And Michael pauses. He says, my mission is stated as follows. I will not be beat. I will never give up. I am on a mission. That is the Michael Scott guarantee. And as things move forward, it's pretty clear that Michael's mission statement is not very solid. Like that he hasn't thought this through at all. He has no idea what he's doing. His Nana says after he's pitched, says, you know, Michael, I'm not so sure that I want to support this. And Michael says, well, well what is it exactly? I mean, what, what specifically? It doesn't have to be paper. We don't have to sell paper. We could sell medicine or we could sell other things. You see, Michael has no idea what his mission statement is. And this psalm today is actually, it's about God's mission statement. And we're going to see that God is nothing like Michael Scott. He has a clear mission. It's about what God is doing in our world. So as we look at this psalm, we're going to be looking at, at three questions. So first, what is God doing? Second, where is he doing it? And third, how do we join in? So what is God doing? Where is he doing it? And how do we join in? So first, what is God doing? What is God's mission? This is a song about God's mission. So what is his mission? Well, first off, the, the first part of God's mission, we see it in verse 2. Look with me there. It says, Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. So the people gathered in worship here in this psalm, they're, they're encouraged to tell of the Lord's salvation. And many of us, when we hear this word salvation, uh, we, we might think of kind of how a lot of Christians talk about being saved, right? If you've grown up in the church, or even if you grew up with friends who are Christians, or, or maybe you've just even heard it, uh, we talk about being saved. And what we mean by that usually is that um, through faith in Jesus, our souls are saved. And that's certainly part of what's in view here, but I think there's more. The word salvation here, it doesn't just mean uh, God saving souls. It means a decisive victory or deliverance. And sometimes the Bible will use this word to refer to like, like a, a battle. Like if someone comes in and wins a battle for someone, that, that is spoken of as salvation. 
The salvation spoken of in this passage is not just God's saving of souls. No, it's, it's his victorious action in all of creation. And we see this unpacked further in verse 3. It says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. And this phrase here, marvelous works, it's used in the Old Testament a lot of times to refer to God's actions in saving his people in the Exodus. Where God rescued his people from 400 years of slavery, he delivered them out through these miraculous ways, through these plagues and through uh, bringing the people through the Red Sea. So salvation here is referring to God's victorious action. Salvation here, it, it definitely includes individual souls, but it's much more than that. It is delivery from slavery and bondage, whether that be physical, emotional, or spiritual. What it means is, is it's God subduing his creation, him expanding his kingdom. And that's the first part of God's mission. It's, it's subduing, it's expanding, it's conquering. But what's the second part of God's mission? The second part of God's mission is, is ruling. Look with me to verse 10. It says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So the, the worshiping community here is encouraged to, to tell everyone among the nations, the Lord is king. The Lord reigns. He rules. And then in verse 11, we see the response to this. It shows the ramifications of God's rule. It says, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. See, and this joyful response by all of nature is a recognition of God's kingship. And so we see here that, that God's kingship is his rule. It's about heaven coming down to earth. And, you know, we see this in the Lord's Prayer that many of us, I'm sure, are familiar with, uh, if have not prayed it hundreds and thousands of times in our life. The second line says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. See, that's what God's mission is. It, it's bringing heaven down to earth. It is, it is ruling, it is realizing his kingship more and more on the earth. But to put it simply, if I, if I had to sum this up, right? So, you know, kind of our question is, what is God doing? What is God's mission? To put it as simply as I can, God's mission is to bring joy to the world. To bring joy to the world, like the Christmas song that actually is really not about Christmas, but that's a whole other point entirely. But his mission is about bringing joy to the world. That's what God's doing. So God is bringing joy to the world, but where is he doing it? And your response may be, well, uh, Thomas, you just said the world, and technically you are correct. Um, but more what I mean is kind of how far-reaching is God's mission? Like, where is God bringing joy? Is it going to specific groups of people? Is it just to our souls? Is it to the spiritual world? Is it to the physical world? Is it God's mission to save a few people out of the world and then just to bring them into heaven? What is it? Is there something else in view? So I think this psalm shows us at least three areas where, where God's mission is going forward. And the first one, I um, kind of straightforward, his mission is going forward in his church, in his people. His mission is going forward in the people who would have gathered together in worship and would have sang this song together again 
and again. In verse 2, these people are told to, to sing to the Lord, to bless his name, to tell of his salvation from day to day. And in order to tell of God's salvation, it, it, suppose, it presupposes that we've actually experienced it. So the church is a group of people who has experienced the salvation that God has given us, who has experienced God's victorious rule. The church is a group of people who experiences the salvation of God in the present moment. So God's mission goes forward in the church. But also we see, uh, secondly, that God's mission goes forward among the nations. And last week, if you were listening along with us in Psalm 87, we saw that God's mission, God's people, um, includes a whole lot of people that you wouldn't expect. In Psalm 87, we see that God includes among the people who know him. He includes Egypt and Babylon, which are kind of the two main oppressors in the history of Israel. He includes Philistia, which if you read the Old Testament, Philistia is, is constantly the one who is giving Israel trouble. He includes Tyre, who is like kind of the rich, wealthy, uh, seafaring trading nation. And he includes Cush, which is the furthest reach of the world. And what we learned with that last week is that there's no group of people that God does not have a plan for. And we see the same thing going on here. The mission of God is not merely for him to save a small number of people and to just extract them out of the earth. No, the mission of God is for him to save this number of people so that they might exist for the good of all the other people in the earth. And so they might reach the nations. We see this in verse 3. It says to declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the people. And then again in verse 7, we see that the families of the peoples, that, that means just simply every people group in the world. All the families of the peoples are supposed to, in verse 8, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength to bring an offering and come into his courts. And this language of offering and courts, that, that undoubtedly refers to worship, to temple worship. And what we see here is that all the families of the earth, every single people group without distinction, will one day come and worship God at his temple. It means that the outsiders are going to be brought in. There will be no such thing as an outsider. We see here this is a vision of an ever-expanding people of God. And the mission of God is for all nations to be brought in, to, subdued, to be subdued and to live under the kingship of God. So the mission of God goes to the church, goes to the nations, but we see here also that it goes to all of creation. If you would look with me to verses 11 and 12, this is kind of the most striking part of this psalm for me. It says, Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. So we see here that God's mission of bringing joy to the world has implications not only for the church and for the nations, but also for all of creation. We see heavens being glad. We see the earth rejoicing. We see the sea and all the sea creatures rejoicing, like dolphins flipping out, great white sharks going crazy, fields are exulting, Nebraska cornfields are exulting. This sounds like something out of like the Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia, something where nature is enchanted, where, where it comes to life, where trees start speaking. And this is probably not meant to be taken straight, like as a straightforward picture of what's going to happen 
when God's kingdom comes, when his mission is complete. But at the very least, it's meant to convey that there is a connection between God's mission and creation. That God's vision for restoring, for bringing joy, it's, it's all of creation. It's everything that he created is within the realm of what he is doing. And this means that creation will become more itself as God's mission goes forth. Right? Like, like there's something about creation. Like tigers will become more tigers as God's mission goes forth. The forest will become more forest-like as God's mission comes forth. And that's so the opposite of our experience, isn't it? We see humanity uses creation to our own ends. And we see all sorts of problems coming from that, don't we? But we see that God is about the business of restoring all of creation. It's as the hymn, Joy to the World, says. It says, He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. What that means is that God's mission goes forth far as the curse is found. That's, that's anywhere that there is sin and death and decay in this world. God's mission is going towards that, to eradicate that. And I think one of the best pictures I've seen of this um, comes from Return of the King, uh, in, in Return of the King, it's kind of at the end, Sam is talking to Gandalf, who's a wizard. Um, but Gandalf, he thought, Sam had thought Gandalf had died. But then he sees him, and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I'm, I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days, without count. Y'all, the mission of God is that everything sad will come untrue. God is bringing joy to the world as far as the curse is found. Laughter will ring throughout all of creation. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what sort of, what restored creation, what restored humanity, what restored, like, all the nations coming together in the praise of God might look like? And it's almost impossible to do that for us, but that's what this psalm is calling us to imagine. Think of the places in your life where you feel the greatest sadness. The places in your life where, where you have no hope, where there is sadness, where there is death, where there is decay. The psalm shows us that it is God's mission to end those sadnesses. It is God's mission to right all of those wrongs, that he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So we've seen uh, what is God's mission. We've seen where he is doing it. And finally, how do we join in? How do we join in? How do we participate in God's mission? I think there are two ways. The first is we sing to the Lord. Look with me to verses 1 and 2. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. We see here three times, sing to the Lord is being repeated. And then in verses 7 to 9, we see basically the same thing. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And to sing to the Lord and to ascribe to the Lord, these are, these are similar things. 
They just mean what we, uh, what we studied in Psalm 103, right? To call God good, to say to him, you are good and all you do is good. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to worship the Lord. We're supposed to sing to him. In order to participate in God's mission, the first thing is we, we must be completely consumed with the worship of God. And worship here doesn't just have to mean singing in church, especially because right now that's not a possibility. It certainly includes that, but it means so much more than that. It's living all of life before the face of God. It's, it's singing to the Lord in your work. It's singing to the Lord in, in your schoolwork. It's singing to the Lord in your friendships. It's singing to the Lord in your families. It is acknowledging God's kingship in everything that you do. So first, we, we sing to the Lord. But second, the way that we participate in the mission of God is we tell of his salvation. If you would look with me to verse 3. After we're told to sing the Lord, sing to the Lord these three times, we're told to tell of his salvation from day to day. And we've already talked a little bit about what this salvation means, but I want you to notice kind of a shift that happens here. The first two verses are, are all about singing to the Lord, right? We're singing to the Lord. It's vertical in that sense. We're singing to God. But then at the end of verse 2, it says we're to tell of his salvation from day to day. It's kind of a switch here. It's movement from singing to the Lord to telling of his salvation, to telling our neighbors. The focus of this moves from God to our neighbor. And the word tell here, it, it means to announce glad news or to preach or to publish. It's the same, same word that's used in the New Testament to refer to evangelism. And we see also in verse 10, after telling us three times to worship the Lord, we are to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. So there's this connection of when we, when we praise the Lord, when we sing to the Lord, we're supposed to tell. When we ascribe to the Lord glory, we're supposed to say it among the nations. You see here that our, our participation in God's mission is both vertical and horizontal. We sing to the Lord and we tell others about his greatness. But how are these two related? Um, my friend Trey uh, is one of the, the smartest people I know. Shout out to Trey if you're listening to this. Um, Trey really enjoys reading, uh, and he enjoys reading things that are pretty dense. Um, you know this if you go over to his, uh, his apartment and see what he has on his bookshelf. Uh, but for about a year or so with my friendship, he was reading lots of this Danish philosopher uh, named Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, some of you may be familiar with him. He's kind of like one of the main people in existentialist philosophy. If you don't know what anything, any of that means, you're okay. Um, I'm not going to explain it. That's fine. But Trey loved Kierkegaard. And for about a year of our friendship, it seemed like every time I talked to Trey, Kierkegaard would come up. Uh, if I was behind on school, Kierkegaard. If I was angry, Kierkegaard. If I was having relationship trouble, Kierkegaard. You get the picture. You see, Trey loved Kierkegaard so much that, that really he couldn't do anything without referencing Kierkegaard somehow. And weirdly enough, I, I kind of caught this disease. One time Trey and I, when we were talking, uh, we were hanging out and he had just kind of shared something with me. And I, responded, and, and I responded with a Kierkegaard quote. Like, how did that get in me? Like, how, how did I become a Kierkegaard person? You see, we, we intuitively understand that what we love is meant to be shared. 
See, Trey loved Kierkegaard, and, and he shared it with me any chance that he could. See, we preach about what we love. The same is true of our relationship with God. When we are consumed with love for God, when we sing to him, when we worship him with all of our being, we cannot help but share that love with others. To truly love something is to desire others to love it. We know this is true. I mean, if you've ever talked to me about The Office, I can't handle if you don't like it. If you talk to me about barbecue, I've probably said something really snobby because honestly, like the best barbecue is North Carolina barbecue, and that's just a fact. Or if you talk to Jason about pizza, he will mention that the, uh, the Valentino's Pizza in Memorial Stadium is objectively the best. And it's not a matter of like opinion. You're just wrong if you don't believe it. Right? We preach about what we love. We share what we love. To truly love something is to desire others to love it as well. So I want to close with, with a word of application here. What does it look like for us to participate in God's mission? What does it look like for us to sing to the Lord and to tell of his salvation? And I think that's a very important consideration as we're, we're in the season of Easter. Right? Easter was just on Sunday. On Sunday, Christians around the world celebrated Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And the, the resurrection from the dead that we see from Jesus is the salvation that this psalm is speaking of. The salvation that we're supposed to tell everyone about from day to day. Easter is about Jesus being king over death. And this is, I mean, this is overwhelmingly good news. So how should we sing to the Lord and how should we tell of his salvation? I recently came across this quote from a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright. He said this about, about Easter. He said, Easter is about the wild delight of God's creative power. We ought to shout alleluias instead of murmuring them. We should light every candle in the building instead of only some. We should give every man, woman, child, cat, dog, and mouse in the place a candle to hold. We should have a real bonfire, and we should splash water about as we renew our baptismal vows. Every step back from that is a step toward an ethereal or esoteric Easter experience. And the thing about Easter is that it is neither ethereal nor esoteric. It's about the real Jesus coming out of the real tomb and getting God's real new creation order underway. And he continues on, Easter ought to be an eight-day festival with champagne served after morning, morning prayer or even before, with lots of alleluias and extra hymns and spectacular anthems. Is it any wonder people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't throw our hats in the air? Is it any, any wonder we find it hard to live the resurrection if we don't do it exuberantly in our churches? Is it any wonder that the world doesn't take much notice of Easter if it's simply celebrated as a one-day happy ending tacked on to 40 days of fasting and gloom? And friends, let, let me summarize that for you. We participate in God's mission by turning up the volume on our celebration. Our celebration should be loud. It should be joyful. It should be outward focused. When people look at Christians, they ought to think that we are far more joyful than we have reason to be. And how timely is that for us right now? What an opportunity we have to show forth the joy of the resurrection to show that Jesus has defeated death. And why should we be so joyful? Well, because Jesus Christ walked into death and he shot his way out the back of it and he promised to bring us with him. 
This is the sort of good news that we ought to be eager to share. We haven't properly understood this unless we want to share it with others. And this is a very good word to us in a time in our culture where we are consumed with the fear of death. And justifiably so. I mean, this, this virus is scary. And the resurrection of Jesus does not mean that you don't have to comply with the CDC guidelines. It's not at all what I'm saying. But what it does mean is that you have a realistic hope that transforms your present experience. If you're a Christian, you know that death is not the end of the story. You know that you will be resurrected and ultimately that everything that is sad will come untrue. So what would it look like for you to live in light of this hope right now? What would it look like to smuggle some of the joy of the resurrection into our everyday experience right now? To bring it into our friendships, to bring it into our families, to bring it into the endless amount of Zoom chats that we are in. Friends, we can sing joy to the world. The Savior reigns in the midst of dark times because the resurrection is true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that you are on a mission of bringing joy to the world. And Lord, that that joy is not um, esoteric, it's not... Uh, so high above us that we can't understand it. No, it's, it's tangible. You are bringing joy to the world in every place where sin and death and decay is found. Lord, you are restoring creation. You have restored us as your people to bring the good news of that to the nations. And Lord, that will continue on. That will go as far as the curse is found. Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to be people of joy people who sing to you and who, who tell others of your name. I pray, Lord, that um, we would be people who are so filled with joy in you that telling others would naturally happen. Lord, I pray that um, no one would feel uh, manipulated um, to, 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 uh, to evangelize out of some sort of shame, but no, Lord, out of the joy that we have experienced in your salvation, that we would that it would be an overflow that we are just dying to share with people. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.